0: Hey everyone, this is Lucas Banyo, an investor at Village Global, and I'm here with my co-host Ian Cinnamon. Welcome to SolarPunk. In this podcast, we cover topics related to space and defense, and discuss how technology can
1: contribute to a better and safer world.
0: Hey everyone, this is Lucas Banyo. Welcome to another episode of SolarPunk. Today, we're super excited to have Josh Steinman on the show. Josh is the founder and CEO of Galvanic, an industrial control systems cybersecurity startup. Prior to that, he was a deputy assistant to the president and senior director for cyber on the National Security Council. He was responsible for coordinating all U.S. government policy and execution on matters related to cybersecurity, cyber operations, telecommunications, crypto, and supply chain, from 2017 to 2021. Prior to serving at the White House, Josh was a first-standing employee at a cybersecurity startup and spent eight years on active duty as an officer in the U.S. Navy with two operational deployments to Iraq. Josh, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks, Lucas. Thanks, Ian. It's great to be here. Really excited to spend some time with you guys on the Village Global Podcast.
3: Awesome. Well, so just to kick us off, can you give us a little bit uh, of a background on yourself and Galvanic uh, and what are you building there?
2: Yeah, awesome. We're really excited too. So me and my co-founders have had a long history of being involved with the security of big industrial infrastructure and risk management. And so, when I left the White House, we got together and decided that we wanted to start a company to help address the major systemic risks that we saw out in the world uh, where lots of bad things are happening to big industrial infrastructures. You have uh, water treatment facilities, meatpacking plants, breweries, all these things getting hit by, by malicious cyber activity. And we wanted to start a company to help industrial companies deal with that problem. And so we spent seven months doing customer discovery, looking at different potential business models, and finally we settled on building Galvanic. So what we're doing is essentially uh, building a Splunk for industrial systems uh, and industrial systems security. So you can think of that as a, as a place where we can pull in all of the data that industrial systems and infrastructures kick off and then correlate all that information and then maybe start to do some very, very light uh, sort of machine learning. But really the correlation is the big part. That's something that, that can't happen right now, which means that the only way to understand what's happening on an industrial infrastructure is to look at the raw data feeds coming in from across uh, from across that network. And it's just really hard.
0: Awesome. And for
1: people who aren't,
2: for people who aren't deep experts uh,
1: in these industrial systems, when they're when you're able to suggest correlations or show outputs of some of this light machine learning, what benefits do they get?
2: What, what are the upsides? So right now, when one of these types of systems fails, uh, the way in which the person who owns it knows is maybe catches on fire, or maybe it just does something very, very slightly wrong. And the only time... You'll find out is when a customer comes back and says, hey, this thing isn't working properly, it's not configured correctly, maybe it's been manufactured the wrong way. Uh, and so what we would call this is like the, the moment of awareness uh, that something has gone wrong inside that infrastructure is is right of boom. So right and left is terminology people use if you think about like a timeline. And so our goal is what's called reduce time to detect. That's sort of security lingo. And what it means is we wanna as quickly as possible, be able to notify people that run these infrastructures that, hey, there's something really strange happening and you probably wanna go take a look at it. So, you know, the ideal is what we call left of boom. That's some military terminology. So ideally you wanna find out before something ever goes wrong. Right now, uh, in many cases, it'll be days or weeks or months after something has gone wrong that you can finally pinpoint that there was some type of malicious cyber activity. Uh, And so we're trying to reduce that time that it takes for someone to detect that bad things are happening. Very cool. So obviously you're speaking about this from a place of
1: expertise and based on your background and your time in the National Security Council, you've had unparalleled insights into this industry. Um, let's take a step back. Will you tell us uh, about what the National Security Council is and what you did uh, in that position? what role do, did you play in supporting the White House? and how did that lead to learning everything that you needed to learn to be in the position to start Ganik? Absolutely.
2: So you know lots of people, um, if you, if you don't ever really interact with the government, it kind of seems like this big monolith, but you know the government's a big thing. <laughs> We have three branches: the executive, the legislative, and the judicial. Uh, most people uh, only ever think about like what are called departments and agencies: the Department of Defense, the Department of Energy, uh, the, you know, uh, Department of Homeland Security. Those exist within the executive branch, and per the Constitution, all executive authority is vested in the president. Again, that's just how the Constitution is written. and So whenever Congress authorizes something to happen – so, for example, uh, they'll authorize the Department of Defense. That's something that actually happens legislatively on a periodic basis. They'll authorize the existence of a Department of Energy. They're essentially authorizing the president to go out and organize some activity that would do something like man, train, and equip combat-ready naval forces – i.e. creating a navy. Actually, the navy is a bad example. It's actually authorized in the Constitution, but like a Department of Defense. And so the point here is that inside the executive branch, which is where everything actually, quote unquote, happens in the government, inside the executive branch, you have massive organizations and bureaucracies, like I said, the Department of Homeland Security, the Department of Defense, the Department of Energy, the Treasury Department, et cetera. So when the president wants to go out and use those tools to act to the advantage of the American people, Uh, the president needs a way to make sure that all of those departments and agencies, uh, one, understand the strategy that the president's trying to pursue, and then make sure that they're sort of acting in a way in accordance with the goals set forth in their strategies. And so the, the National Security Council is a, is a group of staffers inside the White House and they answer to the National Security Advisor. And their goal is to identify the strategies that all departments and agencies ought to pursue and then to coordinate and synchronize their pursuit of those strategies. So for example, you know, lots of people, they'll be out on Twitter and they'll say, oh, the president ought to do X. So um, something that we did in my time on the National Security Council is we realized that nothing had ever been written officially that said that the United States government thought it would be a good idea for space-based systems to uh, integrate encryption technologies. Really important thing, really important for security, uh, really important for many reasons. And so we spent uh, almost two years writing a strategy document, writing an implementation document about what every department and agency should do in order to make sure that at every step of their activity, they were encouraging the encryption and cybersecurity of space-based systems. That could be anything from the Department of the Coast Guard, or sorry, not Department of Coast Guard, the, the, uh, the Coast Guard, which is part of the Department of Homeland Security, except in wartime, it's part of the Department of Defense. In that case, it could be NASA, an independent agency. It could be the Department of Defense. Um, It could be the Department of Commerce and uh, NIST, the National Institute for Standards and Technologies, which is an element of the Department of Commerce. And so we spent, you know, 18, 24 months talking to every department and agency, bringing them together, going through all these meetings. Hey, how should we go about making sure that we're pushing for encryption of space based systems? After all that time period, we came up with a policy document called Space Policy Directive 5, SPD-5, and then we ran it through a process where we had uh, escalating groups of senior government officials all the way up to the actual uh, National Security Council, which is made up of uh, specific members of the cabinet, so Secretary of Defense, Secretary of the Treasury, Director of CIA, Secretary of Commerce. There's a whole list of people that actually compose the National Security Council, and those are the actual members of the cabinet. So we took this document, Space Policy Directive 5, and took it through a, a whole sequence of meetings. And then ultimately, it was, it was put into place. The vice president signed it in his capacity as the chair of the National Space Council. And now we have this major document and an implementation plan, that every department agency can point back to and say, okay, as we go through our daily business, we are supposed to try and pursue this goal that's outlined in this document. So the NSC serves as this central coordinating function for every almost every element of the national security apparatus. Does that make sense?
3: That's awesome. So if I hear you right, it's really all the way from ideation and strategy all the way up to execution. The, the, is, that, is that correct? That's right. That's right. And so anytime
2: you see some big thing happening in national security world, uh, usually if that involves more than one department or agency, that activity is going to be coordinated by the staff of the National Security Council, who are the interconnective tissue at the senior most levels with all of the departments and agencies uh, in the United States government.
3: That's awesome. And Josh, one of the things we we talked about, um, I think, with Catherine Boyle a couple of episodes ago was about, you know, evasion of talent from government. You talk to a lot of amazing founders like yourself who are building tech companies now and are the cutting edge of technology in the world. They don't want to work for the government. Uh, They don't want to work even with the government at at times. What really motivated you coming from a, a tech startup background to actually go and work for the United States government? Yeah, well, I think part of it was,
2: yeah, I started my career after college in the Navy. I was recruited into a very interesting part of the Navy, got to do some very interesting things. One of the things that I did when I was in the Navy was I I wrote the white paper that turned into the Defense Innovation Unit. That was back in 2014. um, I had been running a program on behalf of the senior officer in the Navy. I was still a junior officer in the Navy. I was running a technology program we were doing some experimental technology work and i realized after having you know several months of meetings with folks out in silicon valley that there was this massive disconnect in between the department of defense and the tech world and you know people people in in the valley and i had done in in my real military career i had done a bunch of work out of uh, out of an embassy came back from one meeting, I said to the people that we were working with, like, we need to create an embassy in Silicon Valley so that the DOD can better talk to the tech world. So I wrote it up, briefed it to a bunch of folks um, that worked for the Joint Chiefs of Staff. That's a group of military officers, the highest ranking military officers in each of the departments uh, of the Navy, of the Air Force, of the Army and then i talked to the staff of the director of the national security agency and wrote a white paper briefed it around to a bunch of folks and then the the sec and the chairman a few months later authorized the creation of this thing called the defense innovation unit it happened to coincide with my time getting out of the navy getting off of active duty and i happened to be moving out to silicon valley to take a job at a startup and so I also I, I not only wrote the paper that turned into the, the Defense Innovation Unit, along with a few other civilians that were working on the same problem from another angle, uh, but then I got to be what's called in the Navy a plank holder, and that's the first group of folks that go to any unit to stand it up. And so I, I went out and helped, and helped stand that unit up back in 2015. And so I had been thinking about this problem for a very long time. I'd been thinking about bunch of other aspects of this and so when i got the phone call to come back to the national security council even though i think many people would have said you know i was very young to have that job people in those jobs are usually like in their 50s and it's usually sort of like the crowning achievement of of a career in public service usually they sort of go off into the sunset after that or sometimes they get a promotion and become cabinet officers themselves or ambassadors i was very young to get that job but i Specifically knew that there were some problems that I could go out and solve around cybersecurity, of big infrastructure, around uh, U.S. government's relationship with the technology industry, a whole bunch of other things. And so for me, it was just an opportunity to solve problems, which is something that I'm always going to, you know, take very seriously. So on, on behalf of all the startups working with the government,
1: thank you for helping stand up uh, DIUX and bringing this all together. Um, I think uh, both myself and my uh, former life at Synapse and many other companies are very happy. One thing, uh, Josh, I'm very curious about is we've seen the evolution of a lot of different ways in which the government tries to work with technology companies. So we've seen everything from SBARs to programs like AFWorks and Spaceworks to obviously uh, DIU. Um, and yep. many other agencies spin up, given both what you knew back in the time when you were writing this white paper, now over the years, and you're starting Galvanic, which also will tie into the government in, in certain ways. What do you think, if you were to think about it from today's perspective, is the right way the government should be working with startups who want to have an impact? Is it what
2: IU looks like today, or is it something different? It's a, a great It's a great question, Ian. I actually think DIU is doing a good job. If there was one thing that I would do, I would have kept it the way that originally was where the head of the Defense Innovation Unit was answering to the very most senior staff inside the Department of Defense. Very recently, they made a change where the person is answering to essentially uh, someone who's very senior, but they also have competing interests with the major defense primes. And so I feel like You know there's this battle going on inside the department about where diu falls in the org chart and with my experience being a junior officer on on this thing called the chief of naval operations rapid innovation cell where we did a whole bunch of cutting edge work my experience has been that if you want to continue to drive change your team has to have direct access to the senior most sponsor of that activity so that's the only change the team's doing great. Uh, Mike Brown, who runs it right now, um, along with, I think he's Brigadier General now, Bucky Butoh from the Air Force. Just a great team out there. Those guys are doing amazing work. Uh, the procurement stuff they're doing is amazing. The community building stuff they're doing is amazing. So I'm really proud. It's uh, grown into like everything that we thought it might be back when it was just like literally two, two typed pages. <laughs> Uh, I looked at the essay the other day. I looked at it back in twenty four, you know, wrote in twenty
1: fourteen. Uh, to, to dive in there a little bit deeper, one of the pieces of feedback that I've had from working with the government, and I've heard uh, others as well, is getting the initial, whether it be a grant or access or something, to essentially open the door of a technology company working with the government has improved massively. Right, the, uh, yep. uh, the new programs in place, including AU, have been a monumental game changer. Where yep. we've seen gaps both from personal experience in our portfolio companies has been shifting from some uh, maybe up to low seven figures of contracts into programs of record or things that are more permanent. I'm curious yep. if you have any thoughts on that, of how, how that can be adjusted, or if you think that's just part of the nature of the program and there's always going to be that large chasm.
2: Uh, to get to a program or record. So I, I think it's both. Um, first of all, obviously my, my perspective is I, I look back 10 years, which is shocking to hear, just to even have those words come out of my mouth. Like I look back whatever it is, like eight or nine years, and I just see the the delta, like how much things have changed in that time. And it's really uh, it's nice to see. I mean there was a very small group of group of us, less than 20 people that were originally driving this thing. Um, I remember getting up and pitching it to some senior Pentagon officials at a pitch day event back in like 2014. Um, these were like mid, mid-career uh, Pentagon executives, and it was a crazy idea at the time. So for me, it's like I see the delta. And then at the same time, I've got a bunch of friends, many, you know, some of them in your, in your portfolio uh, at Village Global, others that, uh, that are just great, great patriots and great pro- builders of product. And you're absolutely right. It's a huge problem, very frustrating. And I think the solution, unfortunately, is that the way in which the major defense primes have gone about doing this over the years is building these just absolute lobbying machines. And so I hate to say it, but I literally made this comment to a friend of mine the other day who's starting a very cool company at the intersection of space and defense is what I think what I'm comfortable saying here. Very, just very cool company. And he's the right guy to build this company. So uh, maybe I'll have him come on your show and he's ready to talk about it. Uh, Just really interesting guy. So the point is, is that I told him, I was like, look, it's probably going to cost somewhere between, you know, mid six figures to low seven figures. And there's a very specific playbook. I don't want to bore your readers with it, but it does have, it does involve going out and getting lobbyists that you t- to sit in certain places in a legislative branch, right? So these are staffers on Capitol Hill um, who are now out in the commercial world, helping other companies navigate the legislative process. And frankly, the way in which these big defense primes play this game is they stack the deck. And... You know i wish it wasn't the case but that's i think gonna be one of these things that separates the wheat from the chaff from all these defense tech startups i love all of them i wish that you know the i wish the contracting process was different but half the reason why it works the way that it works is because we have a system that is designed to operate at this massive scale like the system that we have is able to literally build aircraft carriers staff them with young men and women, put them halfway across the world, get them logistically, you know, supported. And it's just very complex. And trying to like break all that down and, and rebuild it, I just think is is going to be very hard. And so better to sort of from my perspective now, I wish this wasn't the case, but what I advise my friends in this space to do is is roll up your sleeves and start talking to folks on Capitol Hill. And like I said, there's a there's a pretty clear playbook about that. Right. We love and, the lobbyists.
3: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And Josh to to switch gears a little bit and dive deeper on the subject of cybersecurity. You know, when we talk about cybersecurity, a lot of people think about, you know, hacking emails, which you know, is bad, but there's a lot of evil actors out there that can do things in the cyberspace that are a lot worse than just getting access to someone someone's emails. Can you give a, a couple of examples, maybe historical ones of like, you know, a few major cases over the last couple of years to help us just level set what are we talking about when you say, you know, cybersecurity is a major risk? Yeah,
2: no, it's a, it's a great question, Lucas.
3: The thing that I would want to sort of
2: set as our initial foundation for this conversation is that when we talk about the security of digital systems, lots of people say cybersecurity. what we're really talking about is that computers that we've now basically injected into almost everything in the world are fundamentally not secure things, right? Um, they can be hacked. The people using them can be hacked. Uh, they can break. Um, and so when we, when we talk about cybersecurity, lots of people are thinking, um, uh, email or uh, apps on their phone or things like that spyware. Oh, it's going to look at the keys that I'm typing, et cetera. But the reality is that these are digital systems, and at the at the thirty thousand foot view, like Western civilization has spent the past thirty years taking systems that were previously manual, right, human beings turning wrenches, and have turned them into into digital processes. And that has allowed us to get incredibly efficient around certain things. But what I tell folks is, we've traded predictable downtime, sick days, injuries, mechanical failures. We've traded predictable downtime for unpredictable downtime. So for example, and you guys ask, give us some real life examples, no one could have predicted that the production line of Cadbury chocolate factories would have been affected by a Russian military cyber attack against the Ukrainian economy in 2017. Uh, this is an incident known as NotPetya, where uh, the Russians were trying to do some damage to the Ukrainian economy. They created a virus and uh, seemed to think that it would only target Ukrainian companies, but for various reasons that folks can read about in a bunch of books or articles, this great. Wired magazine article about this. It's called Wired, not Petya. I think Andy Greenberg did it, but I can't remember. Uh, I think it's also covered in Nicole Perlroth's book. The point is, is that this thing spread all over the world and had both second and third order consequences that were just catastrophic. The Cadbury chocolate factories here in the United States shut down. Their parent company, Mondelez, had a $100 million plus business interruption insurance policy that they tried to call in from Zurich AG. Um, and it's, it's been this huge legal fight ever since that same attack took down um, the drug manufacturing lines of the drug company Merck and had similar act uh, similar impact all around the world a bunch of ports in the United States were affected um, had to roll back doing things with pen and paper and so the point is like that's not a predictable that's not a predictable thing right like when you're trying to plan for downtime there's there's no real way to Think about all those all those potential things that could go wrong because you've shifted your operations over to being integrated with this digital fabric of the world. Uh, and so, like I said, we've we've traded predictable downtime for unpredictable downtime. And the problem is that downtime isn't just about like can I do the bookkeeping, can I send the emails. But now that we have highly automated factories, and, you know this is amazing video uh, fly through video of one of these like drone pilots who flew through the Amazon or sorry, not Amazon, one of the Tesla gigafactories in Germany that went viral on the internet, uh, I think last week, and you'll see a production line for, uh, an automobile where 50 years ago it would have all been humans. And in this video, you see it is mostly machines. And let me tell you, those machines are very likely in some way connected to the internet, or connected to networks that touch the internet. And that's happening across all of our critical infrastructure, across all of our industries. And it just creates this massive you know, vulnerability, massive vulnerabilities. Uh, and so I think people, you know, and it's happening more and more. In 2021, uh, very large meatpacking plants went down here in the United States, JBS. The Molson Coors beer bottling plant uh, went down as well due to cyber attacks. So these things are going to happen more and more, but we're going to realize that that it's a big problem and it doesn't it doesn't just affect laptops and cell phones.
3: And Josh, how would you break down like you know all the, these different types of attacks? You know you have like spyware, ransomware. You know we have attacks going after like industrial operations and equipment. Um, can you maybe just help break down and give the lay of the land of you know the different types of, of cyber attacks? It's a great question. I think the
2: easiest way to sort of think about this is with this acronym that people use uh, to talk about cybersecurity and it's, unfortunately, it's C, I, and A, and that stands for confidentiality, integrity, and availability. So whenever you talk to someone in the sort of like mainline cybersecurity field, their um, discussions of vulnerabilities and mitigations and all that stuff will sort of coalesce around those three big buckets. So what do we mean by confidentiality? Confidentiality is about like uh, hack and leak, right? Or, or passwords. My password has been compromised, meaning the confidentiality of the data on the system has been breached. And now anyone can know it. I thought it was private. Now it's public. Um, this happened a lot. And many of the things that people think about when they think about um, cybersecurity breaches or hacks, these are confidentiality um, exploits, basically. Next, we can think about things like integrity, uh, and that means like does the system operate in uh, in sort of a, a way in which it's been designed to operate, or is it now operating in some in some other way? And that would be. Probably one of the things that I'm most concerned about, along with availability, we'll talk about it in a minute. But uh, integrity is one of these issues where in the industrial world, you're going to be really concerned. It's like, I've got a water treatment plant, and it digitally uh, makes sure that the chemical balance that makes sure the water is potable, drinkable, um, is right. 24 hours a day, we've got all these monitors. So the question is, is that system, is it working? Is it working as intended? And that's a question of integrity. Um, and so that's where I think, you know, we're really starting to see things happen and they can deeply affect industrial systems. And then the last is availability. And that's you guys talked about ransomware. That's a perfect example of an availability style of attack, which is that you you think you can use this system, you know, when uh, when Netflix is down, when like AWS you know, uh, some section of AWS isn't working, all these services that are riding on top of AWS are no longer available. Ransomware can be an example of that. Um, So going back to your big industrial facility, you know, if some articulating arm that lifts the car off of one line and puts it on another or dunks it in the paint, something like that, if the hardware using that dials back to the internet to maintain some kind of functionality, and the infrastructure that it's dialing out to in order to maintain that functionality goes down, the thing's basically dead in the water. It's just a big hunk of metal, it can't operate, it's no longer available. So whereas you would think like an integrity attack would be, oh, we can force it to operate outside its parameters, maybe it's gonna swing and kill someone because we've taken off the safety protocols or something, availability is the thing's not working. Like we, it, it won't, it can't phone home, And therefore, the manufacturing line has ceased to be operable. So those are like the three big buckets. And like I said, most people are really, I think their attention, if you were to ask them, would be on that first aspect, that confidentiality aspect. But I think over the next 10 years, and certainly I saw this in my time on the White House staff, on the National Security Council staff, is that we're going to see more and more of those problems around integrity and availability and because we've deeply integrated digital systems in almost everything we do in the world, that's going to have increasingly catastrophic impact.
1: That, that's a great
2: overview. And I'm curious, across
1: all of those different sectors, what do you see as kind of the largest cyber threats from, and I, I know that probably will be broken out into different parties, right? Government parties, individuals, etc. One thing that comes to mind, given, you know, it's uh, early April right now with the uh, war in Ukraine ongoing is it looks like I think it was either last night or early this morning, it was revealed that the US government essentially squashed a uh, pretty large malware attack put out by Russia against uh, US and other allies before Russia could effectively enact the malware. So I'm curious as you think about the evolution uh, of war and conflict evolving over time, which of those sectors that you laid out do you think will be the uh, largest vectors of attack? Which ones should we be wor- most worried about? Um,
2: and, and what does deterrence against these actually look like? That's a great it's a great question, Ian. Um, I did a lot of work when I was on the NSC staff about, Making sure that the U.S. government had the tools at its disposal and decision-making mechanisms to be able to act very nimbly, and I certainly saw that report, you know, this morning. And uh, you know, uh, it's great to see that we're out there and uh, what we call defending forward, like really engaging proactively when bad things are about to happen. So that's a great—that's actually a great step forward. Uh, really excited to—I was really excited to see that. In terms of thinking about um, what it all means in the future, look, I'd say that lots of people, I think, probably because nuclear was the first sort of, well, it wasn't the first, I mean, you could talk about any number of things, but nuclear is a really potent mental model that people like to use about, you know, some kind of like, not almost like non-physical big aspect of warfare like what about nukes people often say like oh nuclear and they think nuclear deterrence and i uh me and my colleagues uh, over over the four years that that we were working in and around the nsc really tried to push back on people trying to draw these direct one-to-one comparisons to nuclear deterrence and the reason why is because and maybe this is because we were digital natives i think probably the reason why they chose me for this job. I was the first digital native to take that role. I got my first computer when I was like 11. You know, I remember in middle school being taught how to program really basic, you know, really basic things like make the shape (laughs) on the Apple IIe or whatever. And so, um, you know, the internet has sort of an ambience to it. That ambience can be hostility, ambient hostility. It could be ambient positivity, but it's like, You know, in the open source world, you can go out onto the internet and, you know, find things to do. Um, The reason why I think that is important is because it's a connective layer of information and action. And when you have something like that, those dynamics of deterrence, I just don't think they apply. In some ways, they can apply with certain types of activities that you could engage in via the internet. You could imagine certain radical types of operations that really would be quite destructive. But when you have cyber actors that are out there every day doing, you know, theft of intellectual property, putting sort of malware in places where if they ever want to come back, they can activate it. There are so many things happening. Malicious actors are doing so much activity from a day to day on a day to day basis that it's almost this inverse of, of deterrence like if you're not out there doing stuff every day uh you're wrong as my gunnery sergeant used to say um we have to be out there we have to be contending with people in this ambient hostility uh as they sort of try and and eat away at the the fabric that is now supporting our modern you know our modern existence and so certainly myself and a, and a bunch of other folks tried to craft policies that would sort of tranch off activity, right? So it's like there are certain things that everyone's doing that like, yeah, we need to be out there and we need to be trying to like stop people from doing these like ambient bad things. We need to be out there. And then as things get higher and higher in importance, you know, they have more and more scrutiny. Uh, and so lots of people think about um deterrence in these visual terms of like a of a of a right side up triangle uh, how do i how do basically it's like a, a nuclear escalation ladders where like you finally use the tool after you've exhausted all these other options that are not nuclear and what i tell people to think about with cyber is flipping on its head like there are a few things in cyber that you're going to want to just be like we should probably never use this until it's really really bad But like there are things out there that you're going to want to be doing a lot of because our adversaries are out there doing a lot of them. They're stealing things. They're manipulating things. um, They're out there conducting reconnaissance, who knows what. So um, I like to tell people that like using those types of nuclear frames can be really, I think, counterproductive, to be honest. And so we have to almost develop like a new methodology, like a like a web native methodology to think about this. As we see this new methodology evolve
1: and more and more conflicts are occurring, how do you think essentially the quid pro quo for this evolves, right? So, um, you know, it's almost like a a race to discover more bugs, cause more problems, hack into more systems. Does this kind of turn into this just like nonstop battle that keeps
2: evolving? How do you think we almost de-escalate this in a sense? you have to be, you have to be out there. You have to be out there the, this. And what, ambient, what does that mean to be out there? It means going out and like shutting down bad people when they're trying to do bad things. It means very nimbly going out and proactively trying to prevent them from doing, you know, negative stuff. I'm, I'm restrained from what I can say here because of previous things that I've done and legal obligations that I have, um, to sort of not talk about stuff, But but very generally it's like wrestling. If you've ever done like high school wrestling, um, it's not martial arts. It's not like staying back and maybe like one person does a strike and another person does a strike. This is wrestling. You're engaged. You're out there. You're engaged with these like negative actors. You have constant contact. You're seeking leverage. And we need to have our folks out there and and trying to push back against these folks that are doing bad stuff. And I think it's really important to do that as opposed to having this mindset of. Anytime the U.S. government does something in cyberspace, it has to go all the way to the president. That person has to make a decision. And, and I think that that can be really uh, net negative for us because it lets bad people run rampant. Uh, and so tranching off uh, low-level activity and letting people go out and and, and do that and sort of push back uh, at the lowest level. And then as things get more and
3: more serious, like having higher and higher Oversight I think is the way to go. Awesome. Josh to to talk a little bit more about the the actors uh, Behind those attacks when you look at you know all the foreign threats that America faces today How do you compare and you know, how serious? uh, Do you personally take the threats coming from the CCP, Russia, and and maybe other nations? And um, how serious how seriously do you think that the US government is taking them?
2: Yeah, so
3: i can't speak to the government stuff but personally
2: uh the chinese are uh engaged in just widespread widespread beyond i think really almost anyone's imagination widespread theft of intellectual property uh manipulation of the digital environment i mean really at a at, a, at an order of magnitude that i think if if the average person were to sit down and sort of review just the stuff that's come out in public Department of Justice indictments, they would probably find it shocking. Um, there's a DOJ indictment from a few years ago for a group called APT10, Advanced Persistent Threat 10. And if you just read the DOJ, like one sheet or on the indictment of what this group of Chinese hackers was doing, the average person would just be absolutely shocked. It's like whatever takes on, uh, you know, imagine in your mind, malicious cyber activity uh, being done by like a, a few kids in some, in some back room somewhere. And we're talking like orders, of mag- orders plural of magnitude larger to what, what the folks at APT10 are accused of doing by our Department of Justice in an unclassified document. The way that I like to talk to people is like, about this is, you know, obviously the Russians can be very competent A lot of countries can put out really good cyber actors. The Israelis can be very good. The Russians can be very good. The North Koreans can be very good. The Iranians can be very good. Um, The Chinese can be very good. Uh, A bunch of nations can field good talent into this space. Again, I'm just speaking really dispassionately. You know, fact, not value. But the way that I see it, the Chinese are fielding teams that are seeking to rebuild the fundamental nature of the information superhighway. Right. So if you look at like commits to Linux source code and and just look to see how uh, Chinese government affiliated entities are trying to commit new functionality to base, you know, to to Linux source code, and it'll shock you. Absolutely shock you. And they're learning to operate at scale. Uh, The Russians, their activities and their competences have, from my perspective, been much more focused on. Sort of individual attacks and individual outcomes. The Chinese, on the other hand, seek systemic change, which reflects their nature as a uh, totalitarian, technology-enabled fascist dictatorship. And uh, and that is the thing to me, which is just absolutely uh, arresting. Just stops me in my stops me in my tracks when I see what they're up to.
3: So to double click on that, I- I've. I heard you mention before, I think, a, a Chinese uh, Communist Party internal paper called Unrestricted Warf- Warfare. Then people can go purchase on Amazon if they want to. Um, yep. For listeners that are not familiar with it, um, can you dive deeper maybe on that paper and other papers that are available? And, and just give a, a couple of examples of what exactly we're up against.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it's a really important document um, that is not a static document. It's sort of a living Document because the two, the two gentlemen that wrote it were colonels at the time in the in the Chinese Communist Party military. Uh, interesting point here, right? The the Chinese Communist Party controls the military, so they're they military party officers, and they write this paper. And the the big idea here, the big idea from the paper, is that the West uh, only really fights on one on one dimension of conflict, uh, meaning like the physical one. So it's funny, I remember some of these early political science courses that I took back in like high school and college, people talking about like the Greeks being the first people that had organized sports. And sport was this way in which people sort of competed with each other in a way that was not like, I'm gonna beat you up and take your stuff. And this was some novel concept In the growth of Western civilization, which was that we could demonstrate physical excellence and superiority in a way that was not lethal, basically. And so that concept and then it's sort of Christian iteration during the Middle Ages, which is to say that you had competing interests who would wage war against each other by massing forces on either side of the field and then marching towards each other at an agreed date and time. And the person that won would um, be understood to have been the side that was favored by God. It it meant that warfare was this demonstration of, of righteousness. And that physical expression of competence was this reflection of religious favor by God. And so the paper sort of observes that The Western mind is essentially thinking about war on this single dimension, which is that like we decide we're going to go to war against each other. We put our tools in the field. We go out and we sort of play the game. One side wins and one side loses and then everybody goes home. Right. Like the Second World War was like a big uh, was, you know, a, a big physical exercise. Right. And when it was over, it was over you know, God indicated uh, his favor or something like that. And what they observe is that, in fact, conflict can, in this paper, they observe conflict can can be waged in many different places. And the West is really only thinking about this physical dimension of conflict, which means that you can fight by degrading your enemy's ability uh, to, uh, you know, logistically move things from A to B. You can fight by uh, sort of uh, messing with their ability to understand reality, you can fight on all of these other dimensions that are not the dimension that the West mentally is structured around fighting on. And so this paper essentially observes that there's this huge space for the Chinese Communist Party to go out and develop methodologies that will fundamentally weaken the West and the West's ability, and really talking about the United States, to fight. And that all of those things could enable China to win in a conflict before war is ever declared. Uh, And this is this, uh, there are Chinese words for it. But again, it goes back to some of these fundamental Western psychological realities of how we think about conflict. The West thinks about conflict as a binary thing. It is either happening or it's not. We're at war or we are at peace. Um, And the Chinese observation of this paper is really that, There's this continuum that exists, right? And it's like uh, the degree to which we are fighting, again, it's down to this wrestling methodology or or, or thought struggle, almost a daily struggle. And so that paper ended up being really formative from what we can tell on the outside, not not being members of the Chinese Communist Party, really formative for the way in which the Chinese are thinking about waging war. Um, And those two guys went on and now they run the Chinese War College and so all of their students who read this paper very deeply and are thinking about how the Chinese should fight their wars, but not even fight their wars, right? Like even you see that I'm, I'm um, almost hostage to that Western linguistic framework, how they should compete with the West, you know, struggle with the West. So there are a whole bunch of papers that have been published secretly, you could call it. Uh, they don't release them to the West. Some of them have made their way out. And there's an amazing Rand Corporation report systems confrontation, systems destruction. It talks about what all the students of those two kernels have learned and talked about and how they think that competing with the West is about destroying our ability to have like an effective legal system, destroying our ability to use language to describe reality, destroying our ability to describe ourselves in moral ways. So it's like they can you can, If you can undermine your adversary's ability to think about themselves as something that is good and that ought to be preserved, you can undermine their will to fight and they'll, they'll never want to fight if you ever have to fight them. And so that's sort of the, the big the big idea.
3: Oh, a quick follow-up on that. You know, we've seen and this has been proven that, that Russia specifically has actually paid a bunch of, of environmental groups in Germany to actually push for environmental policies that actually ended up, uh, you know, getting the Germans to not want to pursue nuclear and instead, uh, you know, p- uh, paying up for Russian gas. Do you think when you, when you look at, at a, a lot of moral panics on the West today, that we're actually being played uh, by, by sort of those tactics that you mentioned? Yeah. Is yes. there... <laughs> I, I, is there any evidence, and, I, and I, I think you probably can't share some of that stuff, but like, you know, are, are there things that you can point to that, that, that or, you know, it's just something that right now sounds like a, a, cons- like a conspiracy theory, and yeah. then five years from now, we're going to be proven right.
2: Yeah, I, I would just tell, you know, your listeners, there's an amazing article that talks about the differences in TikTok, and what TikTok displays to young kids, anyone under the age of 18... Um, in China versus the United States. and in China, it's like after four pm. the only thing that it displays are math, science, you know, technology, engineering, math videos. and then it actually like shuts off. And I think it's like nine pm. China's very interesting. They only have one time zone, even though the country's massive. Um but it's like there's an hour in China. And it might even be earlier than that because, you know on on one extreme end of china they don't want it to be like 1 a.m and and on the coast be like uh you know some other time but the point is is that TikTok shuts down (laughs) every night in china um and and before it shuts down for a long period of time the only thing it displays are you know these very wholesome videos about like how to how to take apart your phone how to how to do advanced calculus for like 10 year olds And so I absolutely see reflections of these strategies in in many of these uh, efforts Uh, with regards to the psychological operations. And that's a great example with the Russians and uh, anti-nuclear, anti-petrochemical groups in uh, in Europe. Uh, I I do believe that those things are happening here. There's an amazing book by Pete Early, and uh, it's called Comrade J., And what happened was that uh, the senior KGB officer at the United Nations defected back in, I believe, the 1990s. And this guy early wrote a book with him. And what he admits is that the idea of nuclear winter was a Russian psychological operation targeted at U.S. intellectuals that was designed to undermine the West's desire Uh, to engage in a nuclear exchange. Sounds crazy. Uh, You can read the Matronkin archive, which are these KGB papers uh, that talk about Soviet media manipulation. But, I mean, it's real. (laughs) Uh, You know, it's real. When you have, like, senior KGB officials defecting to the United States and admitting that they're doing these things. And then I've had friends that are incredibly technical in these areas actually look into the scientific papers that were used to justify this hysteria around nuclear winter and they're very light. There's almost, there's very little there. Uh, and so I can tell you that these things happen and, and I do believe that they continue to happen. So if you're somebody
1: who sees this, I mean, I think your TikTok example, it doesn't get more tangible than that, right? Like, uh, I can tell you, uh, Uh, Not firsthand because I don't have TikTok on my phone, but I can tell you secondhand, if you go on TikTok after 9 p.m. in the US, you definitely don't get those scientific videos. Let's say you're someone who cares about this, like hopefully all of our audience and all of our listeners. What what's your advice on how people can actually stand up and take action? Is it something where it's like, join the U.S. Digital Core? Is it go work for a startup like Galvanic? Is it go start your own company solving these problems? Or is it more in the everyday actions that you take? What are little things you can do to push the world in the right direction? Um, Obviously, different spectrum of options for different types of listeners uh, who we may have on the program. But would love your quick take on uh, what's the best action one can take here.
2: Ian, I think, unfortunately, the answer is yes to all those things. Uh, For us at Galvanic, I mean, we're definitely hiring embedded systems engineers, you know, folks that understand uh, hardware, front-end, back-end engineers, data people, just, you know, ping me on Twitter at Joshua Steinman. Uh, DMs are open. And then there's a ton of other companies that are operating in this space, many of which are in the Village Global portfolio, whether it's Hadrian or, uh, geez, I mean, you guys could, you know, just direct people to your, to your portfolio page. Great companies out there. Um, but then also, uh, personally, I would say, you know, the sort of base case of involvement is write your members of Congress. Every US citizen listening to this podcast, you can literally go onto the internet, find out what district you're from and write your member of Congress and say, Hey, look, I'm really concerned about TikTok. I'm really concerned about uh, you know Chinese technology companies operating here in the United States. I can tell you, having had friends that have worked on the hill, that most members of Congress are very good about getting back to their actual constituents. It's one thing to have like Astroturf campaigns where people from you know some big city or or wherever are writing the representative from some small town, and that person's not their representative. But in reality, when a member of Congress hears from their constituent, they take it very seriously. Many of these offices, whether they're senators or members of the House of Representatives, they have full-time staff dedicated to just getting back to people. These people work for us, right? Like every single person who's a US citizen listening to this has three people in Congress that literally work for them. Start talking to them, talk to their staff, go to their local offices, organize people to say, hey, look, start reaching out to these people and say, we have issues with this. What are you doing? Members of Congress are pretty responsive. And so I think that's a great way to get started. Otherwise, yeah, I think you have to vote with your feet. I, uh, I, I don't use the products that are built by companies that I know are legally bound by Chinese law to respond in secret to the secret orders of the Chinese Ministry of State Security. So when all possible, I'm going to choose alternatives by companies that are, you know, based in Germany or based in the United States or based in Mexico or based in Japan or or South Korea. And by the way, like the companies that have to respond to the secret orders of the Chinese Ministry of State Security or the Chinese Communist Party is any company in China, thanks to the Chinese national security law, Chinese cybersecurity law, any number of other orders that have come out when you're when you're doing business in china you're doing business with the chinese communist party it's just a fact i, I wish it wasn't the case i love the chinese people um you know an, an amazing uh, an amazing people i've i've had friends that are ethnically chinese that are that are nationally chinese it's it's not about the people it's about the chinese communist party that has these just insane Insatiable appetites to control. And those appetites to control are unbounded. They seek to make the world safe for
3: Chinese communism, which is dystopian. That's a great note to end on. Josh, thank you so much for taking the time. Lucas, Ian, it's been great. Looking forward to continuing the conversation again. um, Folks, uh,
2: you guys know, but for everyone out there, I'm very active on Twitter. So hit me up on Twitter and I'll see you guys there. Josh, what's your Twitter handle for the audience? Yep. It's uh, it's just my first name and my last name, at Joshua Steinman. No space, no underscore, just at Joshua Steinman.
1: Awesome. Josh, thank you so much for joining us on Solar Punk. Thank Thanks, you. guys. It's
2: awesome.
0: Thanks for listening. Check us out at villageglobal.vc, where you can find links and other information about today's episode.